0: great to have you here with us. If you got a bulletin on the way in, worship guide, if you'd look at it just for a moment, when you open it up you see a perforated strip entitled, Hey, I'm Here. We always appreciate it if you fill those out, whether it's your first time or you're here every week. Uh, One item may raise a question in there, I'll point out just for a moment, at the bottom of the middle panel you see the monthly contributions update. And if you're uh, one who who uh, actually reads detail like that in the Bolden, you may wonder, why is there a difference between the year-to-date giving amount uh, and the January amount? And the simple answer to that is our fiscal year begins April 1st, uh, ends March 31st, and that's the reason uh, for that. number of churches have their uh, financial year on a different schedule than the calendar year uh, simply because it's easier to budget when you know what December giving has been. So that's, that's what that's all about. This morning, I'd like to um, continue what we've done for a few weeks in our new year, and that is uh, just say a few words about who we are as a church. Over the past several weeks, we've talked about how our church government works, how financial decisions are made, uh, how we think about our worship services. And this morning, I'd like to uh, look at what we call our vision frames. Our vision frame is, I think, one of the best ways to learn about who we are as a church. The concept of a vision frame is not original with our church. Many churches shape their vision and values uh, this way, but the material, the content in the frame, of course, is that which we believe God has guided our church uniquely to as you look at the frame on the screen think of it uh, as a window frame and through the window you're looking into the future at vision 2025. our vision 2025 is a document it's about a page and a half long you can find it on our website and it, it paints a picture of what we hope and pray and trust and believe the lord would have our church look like in the year 2025. And then as you follow around the frame, beginning on the right side, you'll see a a brief uh, statement there that we refer to as our mission statement, building followers of Jesus who are sent to reach others. Now, what does that mean? Our mission is all about discipleship. If you want to boil it down to one word, that's what Jesus told his church to do, go and make disciples. Disciples of Jesus, however, are not simply people who come to church and learn a lot and soak up information like spiritual sponges. Jesus told his disciples, as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. Every true disciple of Jesus is sent into the world with his love, with his compassion, his mercy, the truth of his gospel. So we feel that's our our mission, to obey Jesus' mandate, to build followers of Jesus sent to reach others. If you move around to the bottom of the frame, you'll see what we call our discipleship pathway. There are four steps there. Worship together, grow in a group, serve in a team, go with a mission. These four steps are steps that we believe will help a person who may be brand new coming into our church get a grasp of how we think we can each grow to that place of being devoted disciples, followers of Jesus, being sent out to reach others. If you move to the left side of the frame, you will see seven Uh, short phrases there, uh, three or four words, two or three words, Bible-centered, prayer-fueled, spirit-led, generous-hearted, mission-minded, relationally connected, next-gen focus. These are values that we hope are present in the church but will be increasingly present. Some are more aspirational than others. That is, We're not where we would like to be at this point. For example, relationally connected. We've heard over the past year a lot of people say, I don't feel as connected in the church as I would like to be. And so our elders have embraced that as a particular emphasis for this coming year. So those are our values. And then at the very top of the frame where it says marks, these are uh, how the, the values might be lived out. What an individual what our church corporately might look like if these values are increasingly becoming a reality. Now, our vision frame has led us into what we call our Beyond Initiative. If you were with us back in the fall, October, November, we talked about our vision frame a bit more and how it gave rise to what we call our Beyond Initiative or our Beyond Campaign. And in November, we had a capital campaign with a goal of raising $4.25 million. Uh, we raised 3.7, And so we're adding to our, our mortgage on our building a little bit. But there are six components to BEYOND. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on those today, but just point you, if you weren't here in the fall, to this BEYOND brochure. You can get these in the coffee bar, on the tables, as you walk out. But very briefly, uh, Beyond has six components to it. Uh, The largest one, about half of the cost financially, is a two-story discipleship center that is being built back behind our current offices. Have you seen the grading uh, that's going on back there? It was supposed to start February 8th, but with good weather, they start about a week early, and they've already done a lot of the grading and site work, and so that building will begin to go up soon. We feel like the classes that we have there... The, the opportunities to connect in the building there will really especially help us with this relationally uh, connected value of our church. What we're doing at Noah's Ark is a significant expansion of the entryway with a really, really nice indoor playground for kids. Think of it like as what you might see at a Chick-fil-A or something like that. And uh, this, of course, flows out of our value for being next-gen focused. Beyond our walls, we're taking 10% of the pledges received and investing them in needs around the world, needs that others have, that don't have the resources to build a church building, put a roof on a church. And uh, over the next three years, you'll see on the screen from time to time how that money's at work. Additional parking, uh, kind of a facelift for the coffee bar, and then finally, the least a costly component these are in descending order of their financial cost Uh, removal of the back sanctuary walls to add a couple more rows and more spacious better better uh, visibility seats here next on the screen you'll see a timeline um, that brett canode has put together to kind of show you if you look at the bottom we're in february now and where we should be in september if And of course, this is a big if. If everything goes according to plan, um, everything should be finished in September pretty quick if weather's pretty good. So that's where we are at this point in time on our Beyond Initiative. If you'd like to learn more, you can uh, pick up a brochure out there. If you'd like to be part of this, details will be in the Beyond brochure. Well, thank you again for being here this morning. We are beginning a new series this uh, winter to take us almost up to Easter called Soul Shaping. David Holcomb introduced us uh, to the topic last week with what I thought was a fantastic message. And today we're gonna talk about two of the disciplines that are found in the very good book by Keith Drury, Soul Shaper, that we're using as part of this uh, series. I'll say more about that book at the very end. Um, but as we begin this series, we're talking about how God shapes our lives as Christians. You know, God's vision for you and me, if you have embraced Jesus as your Savior, God has a goal, a vision for your spiritual life, and it's stated very clearly in the book of Romans chapter 8, that we are predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. God the master potter is working on our lives as if they were a beautiful work of art, more fully conforming them to the likeness of his son. Spiritual disciplines, spiritual practices, like the two that we will talk about today, should not be viewed as legalistic ways to make ourselves more acceptable to God. Jesus on the cross did all that needs to be done to make us acceptable to God. When we've embraced his salvation, We are adopted into his family. You can't get any more adopted by practicing these disciplines. These disciplines, however, put us in the way of God's greatest shaping work. They help to facilitate, to bring about the work of the Holy Spirit. And so historically, spiritual disciplines, like prayer, fasting, meditation, silence, and solitude we'll talk about today, are thought to be ways of just submitting ourselves more fully to the shaping work of the master potter whose finished product for you and me is that we be more fully conformed to the image and likeness of his son, Jesus. And so we'll look at those uh, this morning. And before we do, I'd like to take just a moment to pray again. Would you join me, please? Excuse me. Father, we want to submit ourselves to your shaping work as we begin this season of looking at these practices, these spiritual practices. I pray, Lord, that no one would view these as disciplines required to to get to heaven or to make ourselves acceptable to you, but rather to know you better, to love you more to let your spirit change us. And in particular, with the two we look at today, silence and solitude, would you show us if there is a need in our lives to create more space for you to speak to us. And we ask this in the great name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, I think the first thing I should say about this topic is that it seems really strange to be in a room full of people talking for 30 minutes about silence and solitude. But that's what we're doing this morning, talking about silence and solitude. Now, on the screen you will see a statement from Keith Drury's book, Soul Shaper, in which he says, practicing the discipline of silence is a way to turn off the many words from our world so we can hear the fewer, more valuable words of God. Perhaps you're a person who, when you get in the car, immediately turns on the radio, puts on some music. When you walk in the house, you immediately cut on the television. You like to have background noise. You you just need to have that noise this may be particularly important for you. Keith Drury in his book says, sometimes we have to subtract something from our lives to add something from God. And so the discipline of silence like that of solitude is sometimes called a discipline of abstinence, removing something from our life, noise, speech, talk for a time so that we can focus more clearly on hearing from God. It's a discipline that's been practiced throughout the history of the Christian church, is talked about very little today. Very much related to this, though a different chapter in Keith Drury's book, is the discipline of solitude. Solitude is abstaining from contact with people in order to be alone with God and grow closer to Him. Now, throughout church history, some took this to an incredible extreme. They moved off alone into deserts and wilderness and just lived alone. Apart from other people. I don't think that's God's intent. But it is very biblical to take seasons away from other people to be alone with God. Jesus did this often. As you read through the Gospels, particularly the Gospel of Luke, I think you'll find three times, three places in the first six chapters where he's withdrawing from people. He would often withdraw from the, the crowds to be alone into an isolated A desolate place, the scripture says, to hear from God. So that's what we have in mind with these two disciplines. We sometimes have to subtract something from life before we can add. Now the scripture we're going to look at this morning is Psalm 62. It's a psalm that was written by King David. And like uh, many of the psalms that he wrote, it has a particular context, a setting in his life. And the setting is this, David is facing, as he often is when these psalms were composed, adversity. You heard uh, Matthew read it a moment ago, uh, verses 3 and 4. How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? Excuse me. Sorry for my voice today. Um, They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood, etc. So David is facing some adversity. We don't know especially what it is, but we can tell from the content of the psalm that's what's happening in his life. And in this setting of life, this adversity he's facing, he begins teaching us through the words of this psalm how to draw closer to God when you're facing a trial, difficulty, hardship in life, What David begins to do is to wait upon God. And he teaches us that silence and solitude help to free us from distractions so we can wait upon God. By the way, when you see the word wait in the scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, don't think of it the way we think of the word wait in our culture today. This is not like waiting for a long time at an intersection for the light to change. This is not waiting 20 minutes for an appointment at your doctor's office. This is not passing the time and getting a little bit frustrated as you do. This is active waiting. This is pursuing God. This is focused attention upon God. It is drawing your strength and your guidance from the Lord prophet Isaiah said it this way those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength they will mount up with wings like eagles they will run and not be weary they will walk and not faint this waiting upon God this drawing strength from God is what David is talking about and he's telling us as he does this as he focuses in silence upon God alone certain things happen First of all, we more clearly recognize our complete dependence on God. He says, for God alone, God only, my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He's the one who's going to give me the deliverance I need. He only, he alone is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I shall not be shaken. First thing David recognizes in his silent waiting on God is his complete dependence upon God. He alone. He only is going to bring my salvation. Now, in the book of Psalms, David's often talking about salvation and most often I think means deliverance from enemies. That's the context of these songs, deliverance in battle, God saving him in this adversity. But there's something really beautiful about the Psalms. The Psalms often speak not only about King David's circumstances, but they look ahead to the one who would one day have as one of his titles the son of David. Many places in the Psalms are very clearly messianic. And while David's often seeking God's deliverance from temporal circumstances, his salvation, often they point us to the salvation that will come ultimately through Jesus. As the Apostle Peter said, neither is there salvation in any other. There is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved, that is, but the name of Jesus. But David's point is that in silence and solitude, he begins recognizing more clearly it's God alone uh, that will save him. Secondly, His trust is renewed, and likewise our trust is renewed in waiting upon God. Notice what David says. Notice his confidence. For God alone on my soul, wait in silence, for my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock. My refuge is God. Here's David in life-threatening circumstances, but he's getting his eyes off his immediate circumstances onto God, God alone. He's waiting in silence upon God. He's drawing his strength from God, and his trust, his faith, are being renewed. His situation here reminds me of another Old Testament hero. That is the prophet Elijah. We read about the prophet Elijah in the book of 1 Kings. And in 1 Kings, prophet Elijah, having done wonderful miracles, uh, comes to kind of a low point in his life. 1 Kings chapter 9, his life has been threatened by the wicked queen Jezebel. And so, in fear for his life, he flees, he runs, he's hiding in a cave. And in 1 Kings chapter 19, We read these words, there he came to a cave and lodged in it and behold, the word of the Lord came and said to him, what are you doing, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel, excuse me, forsaken your covenant and thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I am left and they seek my life to take it away. And God said to him, go stand on the Mount before the Lord and behold, the Lord passed by. And a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire the sound of a low whisper. Footnote of my Bible says a thin silence. And you yours may read a still small voice. And the still small voice comes in this thin silence to the prophet and tells him what to do. Renews his faith, renews his trust, renews his calling. Out of his desperate fear and the silence before God, he hears God's voice. His faith and his calling are renewed. I think David's teaching us this as well as he waits for God alone in silence. Third, waiting on God in silence. We get a new perspective about life. Have you ever fallen into the the comparison trap where you compare your life to that of everybody else? and Where you wonder, why do I have the health issues I have that my friends don't seem to have? Or why is it that I work as hard as anybody else, but I don't seem to prosper like they do? Why is it that I'm doing such a good job, the best I can of parenting, when my kids aren't turning out like her kids? Maybe you feel perfectly happy with the place you live. You visit a friend who has a much nicer house, and all of a sudden you're not content with your house anymore. You know, this thing of comparison is uh, terribly amplified by, by social media, where most people promote their best appearances, their best circumstances, the things that make them look happiest and best. And often we need time alone with God to get a clearer perspective about life. And as David is waiting in silence before God, it seems that that is happening for him. And so there comes to him this revelation, this realization. Those of lowest state are but a breath. Those of highest state are a delusion. It doesn't matter a person's standing in culture, in society, even those of highest state before God, they're lighter than a breath. Don't trust in extortions. Don't set vain hopes on robbery. Even wealth, if riches increase, don't set your heart on them. He's getting a right perspective about life. It's not about social influence or popularity or wealth. It is God, God only, God alone. He's waiting in silence on God and his perspective is being Renewed, clarified. There's a realignment that happens in time alone with God. There's a reorientation of life. We see things as they really are. And then finally, he teaches us, we're reminded of two great truths about God. And as David comes to the end of the psalm, he notes these. One, that God is all-powerful. One of the greatest things that you and I can ever know about God is that he is omnipotent. All authority ultimately is his. Jesus said it. All authority in heaven and on earth is mine. God is omnipotent. He can do anything and everything. With God, nothing shall be impossible. Now, we look around us and we say, well, if that's the case, why is there so much evil in the world? Why is there horrific uh, injustice and terrorism and pain? and?" Children starving. One of the reasons we need to constantly reorient to God is to recognize that though He rules over all, we have not seen ultimately what we will see when He does away with the injustice and the terror and the evil and the wickedness. But right now, even in your life and mind, when we're facing adversity, we can be assured that the master parter has us on the potter's wheel, and he is shaping us and working to conform us to the image and likeness of Jesus, even when things are incredibly difficult. We had a funeral here yesterday for Debbie Wright. Uh, Debbie was one of the most remarkable Christians that I have known. And I've known Bill and Debbie for over, well over 20 years, 25 or more years. And uh, a phenomenal person of prayer she was. Her walk with God was remarkably uh, close and genuine and uh, like that of only a few people I think I've ever known. Yet, she suffered terribly throughout life. Recent years with a battle with breast uh, cancer and passed uh, a week ago yesterday saturday before yesterday and debbie to me is someone who, as her pain grew worse her suffering intensified she just grew closer to god you know we've talked about this before it's been said that some people's hearts are like clay and when the heat of adversity comes they they harden they become brittle resistant to the will of God. Some people, when they suffer and don't understand what's going on, they turn away from God. They say, I want nothing to do with God. Others, their hearts are like wax. And when the heat of adversity comes, they're more malleable. They're more easily shaped to the likeness of Jesus. How do you respond to your trials? I'll tell you how Debbie Wright responded. Closer she got to heaven, it seemed like the more of heaven could be seen in her life. There seemed to be an increasing fullness and overflow of the Holy Spirit, a a life of joyous praise all the time. Remarkable thing to see. Recognizing that God is all-powerful. Yeah, we have some temporal battles here on earth, but ultimately, my Lord rules. And he has won the battle. David teaches us, in the midst of his own suffering, God is all-powerful. And lastly, that his love is steadfast. To you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Those two words, steadfast love, translate a single Hebrew word, the word hesed, which we've talked about before here in our services. It is a remarkable word, rich with meaning, used about 240 times in the Old Testament. It's a quality of God's love for his own. It could be understood perhaps as loyal love, God's loyal love for his children. It's said that the word always contains these three meanings that always interact, the meanings of strength, steadfastness, love. It's a quality of the love of God for his own, despite what you and I face in life. David's teaching us that is focused upon God, his silent waiting upon God, has brought anew the realization that God is omnipotent, He's all-powerful, and his love is steadfast. To you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love. Turning to God, waiting upon him alone allows us to have a new awareness of our dependence upon him, renewed faith, a clear perspective, and a clearer grasp of his omnipotence and his hesed, his steadfast love. We often need quiet time with God to, to have this type of a renewal of perspective, a reorientation in life. So I want to give you a challenge as we come to a close here this morning. And the first one is this. This week, to take one hour, just one hour, for silence alone with God. Doesn't mean you can't speak in prayer, but cut off all other noise. Bring your Bible. Don't bring your phone. I like having my my Bible on my phone, but there are too many other distractions. It's mean, just too tempting when it beeps or vibrates or buzzes to... to look at it and see what you're missing. Take an hour alone with God. Let Him realign your perspective. And then sometime between now and Easter, be a wonderful thing to do during the season of Lent. To take a half day or a day if you can alone with God. Now, Before we close the service this morning, I would bet that many of you would say, I don't feel like I've had a minute of silent, alone, waiting upon God in weeks. And so we're gonna do that now, even though we're in a room full of people, we're gonna have two minutes, just two minutes. So don't don't get worried, it's not gonna be real long two minutes and on the screen you're going to see three short verses Sonny used from the 23rd Psalm that our call to worship. These are very familiar words to many of you I'm sure, but I'd like to take just two minutes and ask you to simply focus on God and his words here and let him in the silence over 120 seconds, minister to your soul. You may spend 120 seconds just reflecting on the phrase, the Lord is my shepherd. And that's okay. But let's take two minutes now and just let the Holy Spirit bring what's needed. It might be for you comfort. It might be uh, um, just encouragement about some situation in your life. But let's take two minutes and see what the Holy Spirit will do to help us focus on God and wait upon him alone. I think that's two minutes. Two minutes seems a lot longer when you're waiting like that, doesn't it? I wanna encourage you to, again, sometime in the next week, one hour, quiet waiting on God, and a half day or a day between now and Easter. Do you join me as we pray together about this? Our Father, we thank you for the truth that you gave us in the book of psalms and we pray that you would use psalm 62 in particular this week to draw us to waiting in silence upon you teach us to draw our strength from you to trust you to walk more closely with you father My prayer for each one of us in this season of soul shaping is that we would come to love you more fully with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then more fully to love our neighbor as ourselves. And we pray in Jesus' great name, amen.